This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. Welcome, everyone. I'm Kit Poliano, Dean of the School of Biological Sciences at UC San Diego. I'd like to thank each of you for joining us for today's deep look into the Future of Biology event, which is our first since we've become a School of Biological Sciences. Today, along with our partners at UCTV, we turn our attention to a subject that's critically important in our daily lives. Mental health has long been dismissed and undervalued in society, but thankfully, long ignored concerns related to mental health have now come to the forefront of our collective consciousness and are becoming much less stigmatized. With that in mind, joining us to help us understand some of the key issues involved in mental health I'm thrilled to welcome today's three presenters. They are joining us here today to help us understand mental health at the university level, in our communities in the San Diego region, and on a global scale in locations around the globe. Following their presentations, we welcome questions from the audience. Our first speaker is Dr. Savita Bakta, a board-certified psychiatrist. She's been a faculty member at the UC San Diego School of Medicine since 2015, working in the Department of Psychiatry as an associate clinical professor. She's the interim director of the UC San Diego Health's College Mental Health Program, which provides comprehensive mental health care for UC San Diego students. She also serves as the Department of Psychiatry's physician wellness director. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Bakta. Thank you, Dean Poliano, for the kind introduction and for hosting this Deep Look event, uh, mental health event. I'm honored to be part of this event and share about the mental health crisis in college students, um, the unique factors contributing to this crisis, and what we at UC San Diego have done to uh, address this crisis. What is youth mental health crisis? It can be defined as a mental state in which college students could be in danger to harm themselves or others or unable to care for themselves. This could happen when the student is experiencing depression, mania or psychosis or under the influence of substances. At a systems level, this term is also used when the disproportionate increase in mental health needs on college campuses outpaces the capacity. Um, and at a national level, it is also used to describe the rapid rise in the number of youths experiencing mental health crisis over time. In this data from the National College Health Assessment Survey in spring 2019, that is pre-pandemic, you can appreciate a two-fold increase in the rates of anxiety and four-fold increase in the rates of depression. Post-pandemic, the Center for Collegiate Mental Health surveyed 43,000 students across 137 campuses and found that about 80% of students reported impact on mental health. A deeper dive into the mental health impact shows significant increase in depression, anxiety, social anxiety, eating disorder, and distress index above the 2019 national average. Here is a bird's eye view of the rising trends seen since 20, 2009, showing a peak post-pandemic. The U.S. Department of Health issued Youth Mental Health Crisis 
as a health advisory in December last year. And in May of this year, President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris pledged support to address this crisis in schools and colleges. At UC San Diego, we have seen a 30% increase in student body over the past decade. Importantly, the mental health needs have increased 90% over the past decade. This increased demand in part could be attributed in a positive way to the early identification and treatment of mental illness in children and adolescents, allowing students with mental health issues to graduate high school and enroll in colleges. It is also due to the increased awareness and efforts to reduce stigma of mental illness on college campuses, thanks to our campus student health and well-being team and social media, of course, like TikTok, etc. However, we have seen a rising trend in emergency room visits pre versus post pandemic. In the table, we show percentages of the primary concern for the emergency room visits. It is important to note that the cumulative ER visits during the academic year 2017-2018 and 2018-2019 were 231, whereas the ER visits for last year was 183 visits and this year, 2022-2023, uh, in just four months, we have had 66 ER visits. You can see that while suicidal ideations is still the most common reason for ER visits, there has been a significant increase in the rates of psychosis, anxiety, and depression, followed by overdose. Sadly, majority of students seen in the ER or at college mental health program have suffered from mental health issues for months to years prior to seeking treatment for crisis. Student mental health is influenced by a wide assortment of factors. These factors used to be referred to as the biopsychosocial model, but it is clearly more complex than that. College students come from diverse background. They could be first gen from LGBTQI plus community, from marginalized and underrepresented minorities or those who have had adverse childhood experiences. And all of our students are trying to succeed academically in a highly rigorous competitive environment while trying to create their own identity, developing new friendships or romantic relationships, managing finances, basic needs in the context of separating from parents, being far away from home for many, strong influence of social media, news, peer pressure, polarized political climate, climate change, and the list goes on. At UC San Diego, we understand the complex factors that influence student mental health, and therefore in partnership with the on-campus student health and well-being team, we have developed a multi-pronged stepped approach to provide comprehensive mental health care for our students. This makes us unique within the 10 UC campus system and one of only few such comprehensive and coordinated college mental health programs in the nation. It begins with prevention and well-being for all students offered by the health promotion services and counseling and psychological services and provided targeted, providing targeted and 
intensive interventions um, at our college mental health program and subspecialty programs within the Department of Psychiatry. In the next few slides, I'll go over each of these stepped approach. Prevention is always better than cure. College students often sacrifice their physical and mental well-being to meet the academic demands. At UCSD, we are committed to every aspect of student well-being. We have partnered with the UC San Diego Recreation Center to promote well-being. Students can access exercise classes, yoga, health coaching, nutrition counseling, the health and promotion services and the counseling and psychological services conduct several events throughout the year on campus, such as the wellness pop-up tents, the zone, um, which is an area for students to come and de-stress and um, do well wellness activities. Let's talk events to get the students started on talking with the counselor. Workshops and community forums, as well as a robust peer support program to address the needs of diverse student population. For example, international students, students belonging to the LGBTQ community, and those students who are struggling with substance use or academics are adjusting to UC San Diego. Students can also use self-help tools such as the Headspace app for mindfulness, which is available for free. For our international students and students from out of state, we have the My Student Support Program that offers counseling services while, they, while the students are in their home over break. The average age of undergraduate student is 21. 75% of mental health disorders begin before the age of 25, with 50% of all cases beginning by age 14. However, there is good news that early identification and early intervention, specifically intensive psychiatric treatments followed by continued care in transition age youth has been shown to significantly change the life course and impact of mental illness. Therefore, every member in the UCSD community, be it student, faculty or staff can help identify at-risk students to mitigate the crisis. There are several trainings available for staff, faculty, and students to understand how to identify students at risk, check with the students, and get them connected with mental health care team. Although there is a long way to go, we are making strides. The UCSD HEAR program is one such innovation that provides screening and counseling for graduate students, specifically medical students and students from the School of Pharmacy, faculty, staff, residents. Um, our plan is to leverage technologies such as mobile apps. Um, since 96% of students use cell phones, it makes sense to use an app to screen and diagnose and predict the level of mental health care needs that the student needs and then make appropriate referrals. Students with mild to moderate mental health symptoms are initially seen at CAPS and Student Health Service. The primary modality of treatment at CAPS and SHS is therapy, followed by medication management. If the student needs a higher level of care and continued care, then they're referred to our college mental health program. Our college mental health program is a multidisciplinary team 
with psychiatrists, psychologists, and social workers, and we are trained to meet the needs of our driverless student body. In addition to medication management and individual psychotherapy, we provide state-of-the-art therapy such as virtual reality therapy for specific phobias, dialectical behavior therapy, group for emotion regulation and distress tolerance, and we plan on launching a digital-based therapist-assisted therapy um, such as cognitive behavior therapy with mindfulness meditation. To ensure that our students have easy access to care, we have a hybrid model of care and provide telehealth services. We collaborate with student affairs deans and case managers, as well as the Office of Students with Disabilities upon obtaining consent from our students to provide them campus support to participate in treatment and succeed academically. We collaborate with our specialty division partners to manage comorbid conditions and provide targeted intervention, such as students with treatment-resistant depression with active suicidal ideations are referred to our interventional psychiatry clinic to provide novel life-saving treatments such as repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation and ketamine treatment. For students with comorbid substance use disorders, we partner with our addictions program. And for students with prodromal or first episode psychosis, we refer them to our early psychosis care program. Similarly, for students with eating disorder, we refer them to our eating disorder center. The students maintain their care with their college mental health provider, even while receiving care at one of these specialty clinics to maintain continuity of care. We use an integrated care model while treating our students in crisis to ensure their safety and well-being. A student in crisis can reach out to CAPS Urgent Care or College Mental Health Program or go to the ER by calling 911. We'll soon have a dedicated psychiatric emergency response team called the Triton Core who will be able to evaluate the student in crisis and determine the need for an ER visit. We ensure that a student discharged either from an emergency department or from inpatient psychiatric hospital is seen by a college mental health provider within five business days and receives a safety check-in call from our social worker within 72 hours. This approach is critical in managing students in crisis. It improves patient outcome and patient experience and provides opportunities for research and innovation. On the right-hand side, I have listed down a list of crisis resources. What can a student do when they find themselves in crisis? They can call the crisis hotline as well as text the crisis text line. There is the San Diego um, suicide prevention line, as well as for LGBTQ community, there is Trevor Lifeline, Trevor Chat, and the talk line. If you are a parent, a faculty member, or a friend, and you are um, concerned about a student, you can use the UCSD Triton Concern line, as well as the UCSD Triton Concern form and um, one of the social workers and case managers will be able to reach out to the student. 
The seamless integration of our college mental health program within our campus mental health ecosystem is crucial in reducing crisis, offering warm care handovers and care continuity. This integration provides student visibility and access to care innovation happening now within our Department of Psychiatry. To summarize, I showed you the national and the UC San Diego data suggesting the rise in youth mental health crisis pre-pandemic that only got worse with pandemic. The wide assortment of factors that influence youth mental health and how we at UC San Diego have taken a stepped approach to address this crisis and provide student-centered mental health care. Finally, I'll urge the viewers, students, faculty, staff, parents to ask your peer or child or student if they are doing okay when you notice their grades are falling or they seem distant, disengaged and connect them with a mental health provider. We still have a long road to go, but this is a beginning and our next steps are to leverage the technology such as mobile apps, digital therapy and predictive analytics to reduce crisis. Here are various resources on campus. You can use the URL and contact information for our college mental health program. Thank you for listening and for your time. Kristen Brownell is a UC San Diego alumna who received her bachelor's degree from biological sciences and her medical degree from the School of Medicine. She also received her master's in public health from the joint doctoral program with San Diego State University. She's now a core faculty member with the Family Health Centers of San Diego and the Family Medicine Residency, and she's past president of the San Diego Academy of Family Physicians. As you will hear, she is passionate about addressing health disparities in urban underserved patients, and especially newcomers to our community in immigrants, where mental health and wellness have become a growing important theme for patients and the medical community. Kristen, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for inviting me. Yeah, it's wonderful to have you here. Could you please tell us a little bit about the spark that led you to where you are today in your career path? The spark is a little bit of upbringing in the Central Valley um, with parents who were kind of social justice minded, a federal defender and a nurse midwife. Um, and um, I had Latino roots, so my aunts didn't speak English. <laughs> so I had some connection to the immigrant experience. And then um, I was really fascinated with um, other cultures and looked to UCSD near the border for my undergraduate um, experience after City College when I transferred there. Um, and had already been speaking Spanish and had visited Mexico before. Um, so I was kind of just intrigued with the region um, and just kind of dove into the culture in UCSD. Um, I enjoyed just exploring the clubs, found Amnesty International, found the school uh, radio station, uh, the Muir College biology department. Um, we had, I had a minor in healthcare and social issues. And I think Dr. Ro uh, Lola Romanucci, <laughs> Romanucci Ross 
taught like medical anthropology, which I loved. Um, and, uh, just kind of, uh, followed, followed my passions and ended up, um, in working with, uh, human rights, um, issues in with the field workers in North North County um, and then met some physicians there when I was working with Amnesty International and then got connected to some lawyers helping folks apply for political asylum and used my Spanish skills translating and then kind of fell in love with medicine. So like the biology spark, like figuring out how the body works and how fascinating it is and then the other like social justice and it kind of all came together there in undergrads. That's great. Thank you for telling us about that. Can you tell us about a little bit more about what you're doing today and how you're putting those skills and passions to work? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so fast forward, um, Peace Corps in South America (laughs) came back straight to medical school at UCSD Um, Northern California for residency back for underserved medicine fellowship um, where I got to work with the student run free clinic project um, that got started my first year of medical school. And I was actively involved with um, just access to care. There were a lot of folks who didn't have access to care. So, um, so it was important to me to work in the safety net. So I'm working now in a federally qualified health center, um, family health centers of San Diego, where I've been since 2007, so a long time. And it's in the heart of urban underserved San Diego, so City Heights, where a lot of our immigrants and refugees first resettle. Um, but then it's also near San Diego State, and it's near a bunch of things. So we... Um, have a wide diverse patient panel. I have like um, folks who are also working, but maybe underinsured, you know, so, um, so yeah, all over 40 languages being spoken. And now we have teaching health center graduate medical education. So we've graduated six classes of family medicine residents training in the site, um, working at a local hospital, and doing some electives, even with UCSD, um, but also within the script system and family health centers. So, um, so, so yeah, so I do primary care, family medicine, so newborn, OB, um, adults, uh, geriatric, and then I also work with our refugee health assessment program, where we do assessments for the county and the state um, for families when they first arrive um, in the first 90 days of arrival and screen them for illnesses and refer and connect them to the community. Very impressive. Can you tell us a little bit more about the most critical mental health related issues you see in this diverse community that you serve? We're serving um, those who are more vulnerable, so those who may be homeless, those who may be living under the poverty level and kind of struggling with their basic needs. Um, And UCLA uh, just released a policy brief, I believe, yesterday (laughs) um, with the California Health Information Survey in 2020. Um, saying those who have a harder time meeting their needs um, during COVID 
had a significantly higher, at least one in four stress level. Um, and then our local San Diego refugee community groups um, also organized during COVID. So they formed a San Diego refugee community coalition um, and they produced a report about um, the refugees in City Heights um, and El Cajon just in the San Diego community um, and said that their mental health needs were high. So they um, decided to work together. There's over 60 groups, I believe, and are offering community warm lines in different languages. And in our clinic, we, we have mental health embedded within the clinic, but the wait times to see folks are high. Um, it, can, it can be a couple months to get in to see a therapist. Um, so as primary care doctors, we're trained to do basic mental health care. So like depression, anxiety, um, we can treat common things. And then we have a behavioralist uh, psychologist who works with us in our residency. And we have a behavioral health clinic to kind of uh, supplement the mental health system. But if somebody's in crisis, um, we can do a warm handoff to our mental health professionals within our clinic, um, which is very nice um, because, yeah, the needs have, have kind of skyrocketed. And can you uh, tell us a little bit more about what a warm handoff is? So warm hand, yeah, warm handoff. So we screen, the other thing is we're screening for um, depression at most of our visits. We have what's called a PHQ-2, a patient health questionnaire 2. It's like two questions about how you're doing with your mental wellness. And if you're positive for either, it kind of triggers a further screening. Um, and so it's a nine question, the PHQ-9 questionnaire. And if number nine is a suicidality risk, and if you're scoring anything in that line, um, we need to really assess it for safety. Um, and so if we have concern for safety or if people are having more severe symptoms like hearing or seeing things that other people don't see and hear, um, then we call um, for our mental health folks to come down and assess with us so we can decide the next steps in a safe plan. Great, thank you. Can you tell us a little bit about how the mental health issues might differ between or among the different groups that you serve? Yeah, I mean, the uh, our folks that live in the U.S. who maybe haven't lived in a war-torn country and haven't fled, um, maybe have different uh, experience, life experiences. Um, so the, our new arrivals or folks who've been here for 20 years, but they live through a war, whether it's from Cambodia or Somalia or um, most recently we've had a, a, a large number of new arrivals from Afghanistan. Um, they're at higher risk for our PTSD um, and some other issues, just like adjusting to life here, um, not speaking the language, having extra barriers, maybe being separated from friends and family. So there is a special screening tool that we use for our refugee community called the Refugee Health Screener 15. And 
It asks other questions in a different way. It's been validated in um, some of the newcomer arrivals. It, it started out of the um, out of um, Washington, but um, it goes through symptoms of PTSD, a few of those, a few symptoms of depression, and some more um, physical symptoms. Um, about maybe heart racing or body aches, um, stomach pain. And if you're getting symptoms in a lot of different body parts that can be related to it as well. And then there's kind of like this distress thermometer at the end is kind of an overall sense of how they're feeling. Um, zero being not doing well and 10 being they're feeling full, but there's a picture um, because some folks may be fully edu- educated and professionals coming here, college graduates, and some may be illiterate and don't read or write in their own language. So there are some visuals um, to help us screen, and we use those. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's great. Thank you. Can you tell us about the impacts of COVID on mental health and how it's affecting your patients? Yeah, I mean, so many different ways. Um, A, just livelihood, if they weren't able to work, um, they're having less income. If they got sick, you know, I had a patient who was working in a grocery store. You know, she couldn't zoom into the grocery store, a little local grocery store, where unfortunately people weren't required to wear masks. And she got COVID before the vaccine and ended up having long COVID on home oxygen and wasn't able to work for over six months. And she didn't have a large pot of money waiting for her. And um, she was on oxygen at home for a while and had to wean. And she was in her 40s, otherwise fairly healthy, just being overweight um, and then a more at-risk community. And so... um, you know, hospital bills, all those things. Um, But just even for the, you know, I saw a child this week who came in actually with symptoms of COVID. We screened him because he got sent home from school this week with a fever. And I saw him with a resident and um, we screened him for COVID and flu and he ended up being flu positive, but we noticed his weight. He almost doubled his weight since we last saw him, which was before COVID. And he's significantly overweight. So I think we're having a big obese. We're going to find ourselves in a big obesity um, issue because they weren't moving a lot. They weren't going to school. They weren't in PE. Um And when you're short on food, you know, there's like food insecurity issues, cheaper foods, Um, cheaper foods, you might go for the higher calorie ones, which might be um, um, less healthy. Um, So anyways, (laughs) we're just, uh, there's so many different ways you could take this, but um, but yeah, mental health, social isolation, I have an old, I have a few older adult patients like in their 70s who live alone and have declined significantly and I'm worried about them they're still too worried to leave the home they're reliant on elder help and Jewish family services bringing them frozen foods they're not eat you know they're not eating their home 
foods and I'm trying to connect them to our PACE program. But yeah, I'm just like, donate to your food. (laughs) Donate to your like local food banks. Donate to your elder um, community support groups. um, Because that's, they've been really um, socially isolated. If people don't have, the people who do better have like a stronger family connection or friend connection. Thank you for caring for our most vulnerable members of our community and our new arrivals. How is COVID and the mental health crisis affecting healthcare professionals? Interesting you say that. Yeah, I think um, a lot of us for, you know, right at the beginning, it was scary. Like we're worried, could we die? You know, before the vaccine was out, were we going to bring the virus home to our family you know, having to like change clothes before coming in and take showers and you're just really scared and we didn't know a lot about it. So there's like the stress of that and then just the increased needs for your patients, you know, have have increased and gotten complicated and the stress over the last couple of years, like you power through it. And I think we've lost some healthcare providers along the way because people are honestly getting burned out. Um, and then yeah. there was a little dishearten, disheartening to find folks who weren't willing to wear their masks when we're putting ourselves in harm's way. Yeah. Um, just the politicization of things um, was challenging. But, um, you know, you just kind of powered through. But yeah, I know for myself, making it through to the summer and like you feel like things are getting better and then um then I kind of slowed down and you start to feel wait how do I feel (laughs) you kind of put everybody's needs before your own and then um decide maybe you're not doing as well maybe health issues are becoming more of an issue or even mental health issues are becoming more of an issue so over the summer um my good friends and I, who were all alums from UCST School of Medicine, and we've actually been a good support system for each other, decided to um, take our good friends um, coaching. There's like empowering women physicians coaching over the summer to kind of how to prioritize when there's all these demands on you as a physician, especially primary care. Um, And as a you know, if you happen to be a parent on top of that and all the, all the demands, how do you have healthy boundaries? How do you make sure you're taking your lunches? How do you make sure you're eating healthy yourself and you're sleeping and all these things? Cause there aren't enough hours in the day. So, um, so there's been a need and increased awareness of the need and, I wasn't aware till the summer that um, physicians are higher risk of suicide than other, a lot of other professions. And then women physicians are like two times as higher at risk. Wow. So um, there may be some societal pressures. So there's kind of a thought that we should be checking in on each other in general um, as colleagues. And then being a teacher, I'm kind of realizing I was working too much. And, but what am I modeling for my mentees? Like we all need to be 
healthy (laughs) and well. So kind of looking back at like saying yes to the things that are really important and not saying yes to everything you, you, and then looking at the model of the heart, going back to biology, what's the first artery off of the heart? It feeds itself, right? The coronary artery, you know, you feed yourself first before you can feed other people so you can do sustained work Mm -hmm. and don't decide to leave the profession. Wow. Thank you. Thank you so much for um, your inspiration and being such a fabulous role model for all of us and our trainees. Do you have any advice for our audience and especially for our students? I guess my first advice would be find your passion, um, find some place to get involved, get your hands wet, (laughs) you know, get in the thick of things and also take good care of yourself in the meantime. Um, Sometimes we think things have to happen in a certain way, like... Um, maybe I have to graduate in four years or maybe I have to do, you know, whatever. Like I went to the pre-medical group and I honestly was kind of intimidated by the group on campus and I didn't go back. I was too scared. So it's good to just find, find your, your people, um, and ask your professors, ask your friends, look for mentors And then, um, yeah, find what helps you take care of you. Um, My new um, kind of wellness trade to practice is looking at um, gratitude or little pieces of joy every day, not postponing your joy. Like, I'm going to work really hard now and I'll enjoy myself in three years. Or, you know, we need to take care of ourselves now and then kind of giving ourselves time to reflect on how we're doing. So Dr. Um, Michelle Chestovich um, is a physician coach as well, like Dr. Sunny Smith. And she shared just kind of a, an easy way to think about how you're doing, check in on how you're doing is a smile. So S is, um, here, let me see. Sorry, I have it on here. S is sleep. So, um, Sleep is really important. Um, We need probably seven or eight hours a day. Um, So you want to prioritize that movement, some sort of exercise. That was my savior Um, through medical school, through undergrad, jogging, you know, whether you surf, you jog, you paddleboard, you do aerobics, you dance. Um, we even had in medical school, I think a salsa dancing night every Tuesday, people would go, um, I for the smile is inhaling and exhaling. So you almost want to trigger your, um, parasympathetic system just to relax. Um, just take deep breaths. If you're feeling like you're getting overwhelmed, um, and just remembering to breathe. L is laughing, love, um, making sure you're having connections with other people that you're not isolating. E is checking in on your eating and your energy. So if any of those things are really out of whack um, or out of balance, um, maybe even seeking help, you know, um, it's something I've done. It's something my colleagues have done. But we sometimes don't even realize when we're 
out of balance. So it's good to kind of just check in and have a daily practice. Kristen, could you please tell us about resources for individuals who might find themselves in need of mental health assistance or support? Um, Yes. So um, there's a new national uh, mental health um, emergency line 988 instead of 911 um, that we're encouraging folks to use. Um, And it should connect you wherever you are in the U.S. to support. Um, That being said, for folks who maybe speak a language other than English, if they're in San Diego, um, not if they're in crisis, crisis, but maybe having some mental health concerns, A, it's good to always go see your doctor um, and maybe go through a triage line if you're if you're needing to because you're not sure. Um, But there are um, community support navigators um, that are supported by the San Diego Refugee Communities Coalition, um, and they have folks who. who are on the line who speak a a number of different languages, um, over over 10 languages at least, um, which is great. Um, And I have that number, that's 619-404-4322. So anyways, yes, please reach out, ask your, if you're on campus in the dorms, talk to your RA, you know, talk to your parents, talk to each other. don't keep it in. Um, it's not normal to be having thoughts of hurting yourself. So please reach out if you're feeling in crisis and call 988. Thanks. Thank you. That's wonderful. Um, Kristen, uh, I will just pause for a moment and express my sincere gratitude for having you as a member of our community and for all of your amazing work taking care of the most vulnerable members of San Diego. Thank you so much for sharing so much of yourself today and for your fabulous advice. Our final speaker is Dr. Bonnie Kaiser, who is jointly appointed in the UC San Diego Department of Anthropology and Global Health. Her research focuses on understanding cultural models of mental health and illness and exploring their connections to care seeking. She also conducts research on how to develop, adapt, and validate mental health assessment tools for cross-cultural use, as well as a means to improve the adaptation of global mental health interventions in different cultures. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Kaiser. Thank you so much for inviting me and for that introduction. So I'm going to be talking today about global mental health, which is a field that's interested in identifying and addressing disparities in global mental health and particularly healthcare um, globally. My work is really focused on the ways that we can understand how people um, experience and conceptualize mental health and illness and using that information to better match our treatment to those experiences. So things like motivating people to seek care, making sure that that care will work for them. So today I'm going to talk about some of the key questions or challenges in the field of global mental health and the progress that we've made in addressing them. So in about the 90s, um, people started to pay more attention to uh, mental illness because we changed the way that we assess global burden of disease. Um, We used to just focus on mortality. So you can see that um, when just looking at mortality or death caused by disease, mental disorders represented a really, really small fraction. 
But um, in the 90s, when we changed to actually looking at disability caused by various diseases, we saw that mental disorders actually represent um, a much larger portion of the global burden of disease. Of course, we all know there's a really high personal cost um, from experiencing mental illness, um, but we also realize there's a really high economic cost. So this was the second thing that started to motivate more attention to global mental health. So the estimated cost of mental illness through both treatment, but also things like you know, lost work um, is about two and a half trillion dollars, and that's equivalent to the GDP of France. So um, through these realizations, governments and researchers really started to pay more attention to global mental health. Um, and I'm going to talk about some examples from my work today um, and the, the way that we really are trying to address the burden of disease um, and make sure that we're doing it in a way that really um, addresses how people experience and conceptualize mental illness. So I'll tell a couple stories. One is from my work in Haiti, and I started working there shortly after the 2010 earthquake. Um, this is an image from a mobile clinic in a rural area, and on this day, there was a Haitian-American doctor who was visiting, and he spoke with a woman who had lost her husband and lost her mother in the earthquake. She described that she experienced profound sadness. Um, on the 12th of every month, which was the date of the earthquake, um, she you know, just really struggled to kind of to do anything but think about the earthquake. She just cried uncontrollably. She was having trouble sleeping, trouble eating. Um, and the doctor said, you know, you have depression. Go to the doctor and tell him that you have depression. Um, interestingly, there's a false cognate for depression in Creole, so it actually means something very different. There's not an equivalent term for the psychiatric concept of depression in, in Haitian Creole. So basically, this label wouldn't mean much to this woman. Um, it wouldn't make sense necessarily. It wouldn't motivate her to seek care. If she did try to seek care, it would be at this clinic. This is the closest permanent clinic, which is still quite a distance from where she lived. Um, and we spoke to the doctors and nurses here, and they basically said, we don't get trained in medical school to address mental illness. So we don't feel we can diagnose it. We don't feel like we can treat it. So we don't put it in our differential diagnosis. So essentially, if this woman did try to seek care, um, at least in biomedical settings, she wouldn't find that there was um, adequate care available to her. So these are a couple examples of what I'm going to talk about today, which is both um, identifying mismatches between how psychiatry talks about mental distress and how people globally experience it and how we can better match those, as well as the disparities in care that's actually available and how we're working to address that. So I'll focus on three fundamental questions that are facing the field of global mental health. First is how can we best communicate about mental distress? And again, trying to match the way that people conceptualize and experience illness. How can we best measure it? Which is a really closely related question. So this is like assessment tools and how they can match people's experiences. And then finally, how can we fill these gaps in care that I've mentioned? So I'll start with how can we best communicate about mental distress? And I'll start with an example from Nepal. So um, this is an example of the way that people conceptualize the person um, in Nepal. So there are elements of the person like the man, which is the heart mind, and the dimag, which is the brain mind. Um, and after a civil war in Nepal, several humanitarian groups came in to try to provide mental health care. And they communicated what they were providing as um, helping to address problems with the dimag or the brain mind. Um, unfortunately, um, in Nepal, this is actually considered a really stigmatized um, kind of part of the, of the body or the person to have problems with. Um, it's associated with lack of social control, anger, aggression. 
So people did not want to seek care for problems with the dumog. Um, they did not want to be seen as having that problem. So, you know, they didn't try to um, engage with that kind of care when it was provided. So instead, um, anthropologists said, you know, you should really communicate about this as saying it's problems with the mun or the heart mind. Um, this is considered appropriate for discussion. It's not considered permanent to have problems with the mun. Um, so when they shifted to presenting mental health care by talking about problems with the mun or the heart mind, it was much more acceptable for people to seek care. Another example that I really like is called Kyolatak. This is common in Cambodian populations. And the way that it starts um, is if you imagine when you stand up too quickly and you feel a bit lightheaded, maybe your vision blacks out a bit. This can happen if you're dehydrated. Um, but in a call attack, it is understood to be the start of um, a process. And so this happens because um, these kind of uh, wind-like channels that call moves through in your body um, become blocked. And so you have this upsurge of call, this kind of wind-like substance, um, and it can lead to various things like um, burst blood vessels, heart attack, and even death. So if someone has that lightheadedness and they think, okay, I'm dehydrated and they brush it off, that's the end of that experience. If someone has lightheadedness and says, oh no, this could be a call attack, they really pay attention to those symptoms, they get worse, um, they add on kind of anxiety and panic-like symptoms, catastrophic cognitions. So the experience of what's happening in the body and that distress is fundamentally different because the meaning that's associated with that lightheadedness is different. So call attack to me is a great example of where in global mental health, we're not just trying to find like what's the best term for depression, but we're really paying attention to how people conceptualize the person and how that relates to experiences of mental distress. And we want to make sure we communicate in a way that makes sense to people and matches those experiences because that's what they care about having improve. So really closely related to communicating about mental distress is measuring it. So um, in global mental health, both research and practice, we often want to answer questions like, who needs to be referred for care? How well does that care work? Um, why are some people kind of, quote, vulnerable or, quote, resilient to mental distress? But before we can answer any of these questions, we have to step back and ask, how can we best measure mental distress? And when I talk about measurement, um, I'm talking about examples like this screener that I'm sure you're very familiar with that just sort of asks you to report on symptoms like nervousness and hopelessness. Um, you know, do you experience this all the time, none of the time, um, in the past two weeks or the past month? So these are the kinds of screening tools or measurement tools that I'm talking about. And typically, these tools just get translated when they're used cross-culturally. Um, what happens, though, if you only use translation is we have these weird findings like one study found 97% of people had PTSD. We don't really expect that that's valid. That seems really unreasonable. So... Instead, we have to ask, was there something wrong with the assessment tool that was used to produce these data? And so when we only translate our tools, we can't be very confident that we're measuring what we want to measure. So when we think about measurement in global mental health, we have to balance both cross-cultural comparison. So I'm showing an image of a Partners in Health hospital in Haiti. So they have to go to donors and governments and say, we're seeing this amount of depression um, or this amount of anxiety, please fund our work so that we can provide treatment. But as the examples I've shown demonstrate, we also have to match people's lived experience. And in places like Haiti, that experience is very different than where most of our screening tools were developed in the US and Europe. So we wanna to try to balance these goals of cross-cultural comparison 
but also matching people's lived experience. And the way that I do that in my work is through a really rigorous adaptation process that goes beyond just translation to really look at how people make sense of these screening tool questions and how it matches their lived experience. So I'll give a couple examples of some of the problems that we find in this work. So in Nigeria, we tried to translate a depression screening tool item about feeling lonely, and we found that it wasn't conceptually understood the way that we wanted it to be. It was initially translated to feeling there's only you in this life. And people said, oh, okay, that means you're rich. If there's only you, you live in a gated community because you're wealthy. Obviously, that's not what we were trying to ask about. So we had to um, retranslate it to feeling you don't have anyone in life. And that worked well to get at what we were trying to measure. Um, in Nepal, when trying to adapt the item lack of strong feelings, which is another depression item, what we found in how people talked about it is that it really reflected um, value that's applied to different emotional states and particularly expectations around appropriate emotions. So people would say strong feelings are bad. So, you know, no children should have strong feelings. Everyone should say, you know, yep, I lack strong feelings. So what we had to do to adapt to this screening tool item and working with kids was say, you know, when you're in a sad situation, but you don't feel sadness, you're not feeling happy when your friends are happy. So trying to show it's when it's okay to have, you know, emotions, but even those emotions you don't have. So these are just a couple examples where if we had only translated these tools and hadn't done anything else, we would have ended up asking people like, are you rich? You know, do you have kind of inappropriate emotions and not really getting at um, experiences of depression? So the third thing I'll talk about is what is the progress that we're making in filling gaps in care? And specifically, there's an estimated shortage of about 1 million people to address the global burden of mental illness. And this is showing the number of psychiatrists per 100,000 population. And so you can see that particularly the shortage is um, focused in low and middle income countries. So a lot of them have fewer than one psychiatrist per 100,000 population. So one of the main things that we're doing to address this shortage of specialists is called task shifting. And that consists of taking the kind of tasks that would normally be done by a psychiatrist or a psychologist like counseling and training non-specialists to deliver that care. So it might be a primary care provider um, or it might be a community health worker or teacher um, or someone else in a community. And so this helps to provide care through um, human resources that are already there in communities and providing training and some mental health treatment skills. So these task shifting programs have just taken off globally. There's a lot of these programs being developed and delivered around the world. Um, at the same time, remember the example I gave in Haiti where the clinic, um, the doctors and nurses would tell us we aren't trained in mental health care in medical school. So we also need to address this problem um, not only through the task shifting approach, but through building broader systems of training specialists. So in Haiti, um, Partners in Health, which is the international NGO in all of their clinics and hospitals, has a system that combines um, community health workers being trained in task shifting approaches, as well as training the doctors um, and providing um, specialist mental health care, so psychologists and mental health clinicians. So this is kind of a combined approach of um, continuing to train specialists as well as using a task shifting approach to make sure that we can start to fill that gap in care. So thinking back on the three key questions that I raised and what are some of the answers that we've seen today, 
First, we really need to make sure that we communicate about mental distress in ways that match people's perceptions and experiences. That's the best way to make sure that we can motivate people to seek care and make sure that that care is going to work for them. Our measurement tools really need rigorous adaptation, not just simple translation, to make sure that we're actually measuring what we want to measure. So instead of a weird finding like 97% of people have PTSD, we can actually feel confident in our data and that they're really valid. And finally, we're making progress on filling the treatment gap in global mental health and really making sure that um, that huge, you know, global burden of disease that we saw at the beginning um, is starting to be addressed through care provision globally. Thank you so much for your attention. Hi, everyone. I hope you all enjoyed the presentation and our three terrific speakers today. Before the Q&A session, we wanted to share a list of mental health resources with you. Some of these were mentioned by our speakers during their presentation. And first, we'll start with those available to UC San Diego students. We have CAPS Urgent Care. I'm not gonna read all of these. Um, as well as if for individuals who are in crisis, please call the campus police. There's also the crisis text line and the Triton concern line that can be very useful to you. And next for members of the San Diego community, um, 988 is the equivalent of 911, but for mental health crises. And we also have community lines and substance abuse lines and a mobile crisis response team numbers shown here, as well as additional resources for the LGBTQ plus community, both on campus and in the community. So thank you so much. Now we're about to enter the Q&A session. So I would like to invite our, our speakers to please join me here on the panel. First of all, thanks to each of you for your really outstanding presentations today. It was so interesting to hear what's happening on campus, in the community, and from a global perspective. So um, I'd like to start with a question for Dr. Bakka. Could you please um, tell me oh, how UC San Diego's plan for addressing mental health on campus differs um, from the strategies at other campuses or how it compares? Thank you. Thank you for that great question. So um, how UC San Diego has um, addressed this um, is by creating a ecosystem. So we have our Department of Psychiatry that has the college mental health program. And then on campus, we have the counseling and psychological services and the student health service. So in most universities, you have the counseling and psychological services um, and the student health service, but they do not have an integrated system along with the department mm -hmm. of psychiatry as such as a college mental health program. And therefore the students there in other universities have, once they are seen the mild and moderate is managed by the counseling and psychological services, they need to be referred out to the community in um, and find psychiatrists in the community um, for continued care or for much severe, uh, moderate to severe conditions. Um, because we have this integrated with the Department of Psychiatry, the students don't have to worry about the continuity of care and uh, have to wait for a long period of time to find a psychiatrist. They can easily be connected with a provider within our college mental health program. Fabulous. Thank you. Next, I have a question for Dr. Brownell. What are the biggest needs for mental health care in your community and also in term in the among clinical 
caregivers? Thank you for that question. Uh, the biggest need in the community, I guess, um, there's a lot of different needs. Um, one is culturally competent care. You know, um, Dr. Kaiser mentioned um, being able to connect with the patients so that they can share what's going on with them. Um, so if we have culturally competent providers, if we have um, clinicians, psychiatrists, primary care doctors, community health workers who look and who are from the community, ideally, but if not, maybe trained to have the community teach them um, about about themselves. Um, and then the um, we need more resources. Like we have open spots at our um, at family health centers in mental health. I think we had twenty open spots last month, and we. Um, or building, not me personally, but the organization is planning on um, having a psychiatry residency housed within family health centers to try to help meet the needs. They'll train working with those folks. And then needs for the healthcare providers themselves, you know, physicians, um, nurse practitioners, PAs, nursing, everyone. Um, uh, I think a multi-pronged approach is good. Um, looking at systems factors that might be, you know, not sustainable um, in primary care. So looking at systems factors, but then triage ways and then, you know, coaching ways and um you know, having access that's that you feel safe. Um, the employee, the there's EAP lines where you can call for psychiatry mental health support. I think in some states, um, some physicians don't feel comfortable using those lines because they're worried their license might get pulled. Um, so we need safe spaces for people to share what they're struggling with, um, so they're not alone in general. Um, and I love the diversity of health of care providers. So, you know, maybe having psychiatrists consult for the physicians and con consult for the community health workers um, and having our community tell us what they need. So I have noticed I've been getting a lot more questionnaires from the AMA and my organization on how we're doing. So I think it's great. There's some raised awareness and there's been um yeah, the great resignation. So hopefully we're going to stop that if we can address some of the issues that are making it hard to stay in. Thank you. I have a question for Dr. Kaiser. During your studies of mental health in other countries, what has been the most surprising thing to you that you've found? Thanks. I mean, a lot of, there are plenty of surprises, I guess. I guess one thing at least I didn't expect when I started doing this work is how much of my time and effort and communication is actually less focused on kind of other cultures or communities, but really more about communicating with um, folks in the U.S. or, you know, like U.S. providers, um, biomedical providers and whatnot, um, psychiatrists kind of talking about you know, when we're trying to provide care in other cultural contexts, you know, here's how to think about it. Here's some things to do or not to do. 
Um, and a lot of my communication is really focused in that direction about like, you know, here are ways that we want to make sure we're avoiding unintentionally doing harm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that's been where it feels like my effort is most helpful, I guess, or, you know, productive sort of mm -hmm. communicating um, <clears throat> or kind of translating across um, cultures and, you know, supporting providers to like um, Dr. Brownell said in terms of, of cultural competency. Um, but yeah, that was, I guess, not what I expected when I started the work, um, but, it, yeah. you know, it's been really interesting. Great. Thank you. So I have a question from the audience about whether help is available for our students who are enrolled at the UCSD Extended Studies. Dr. Botka. Yes. Um, so I was just typing it in. Yes, we do have help for UCSD uh, students who are enrolled in the UCSD Extended Studies. Um, and I was going to mention that calling the call center uh, for the psychiatry call center 858-534-7792, and then scheduling uh, an appointment with one of the psychiatrists within the UCSD outpatient psychiatric services would be the best way to go about um, uh, seeking help for mental health needs. Fabulous. Thank you. Let's see. Oh, and there's an interesting question from anyone, one of our panelists that would like to answer it about what makes people more resistant to trauma. Why do some people overcome trauma better than others? And how can we truly heal from trauma? Or can we do so? Um, resilient factors, resiliency factors. Um, and I think when folks have community, when they have um, connection, um, folks that I think have worked through things in the community. We have um, a number of them in San Diego, like I believe over 60 ECBOs, like ethnic-based organizations where they can re reach out for support if you're coming from another country. But within our country, you know, having a, a family or having a group or having some sort of connection to other people can help. Um, and uh, there's been some work done in this for pediatrics, like the ACEs screening is looking at what are the risk factors for doing poorly, but there's been a movement through Tufts with the hope we're looking at resiliency factors for the family, which is a whole different topic uh, in and of itself. But, um, but I, I would love to see more research in this area. Yeah, very interesting. I can add some uh, to that. Um, we have, uh, you know, students who come from um, a lot of disadvantaged background or, you know, with uh, severe adverse childhood experiences. And, uh, you know, you can see that the resiliency also comes from like this drive within to, uh, you know, do something, you know, um, these students, um, at least the young generation, the uh, young uh, adults that we see in our clinic have this uh, increased drive to, you know, uh, give back to the community or do something that uh, for the younger generation that they don't go through this or, you know, provide some mental health. So they they have this passion that they would want to be in a position where they want to help the others. Um, and uh, that is one of the factors I feel like the internal motivation or the drive to help others also is a resiliency factor. 
uh, which gets them through, mm. you know, these uh, circumstances. And uh, while they are also processing the trauma, they're able to, you know, compartmentalize that and still mm. work on um, the other aspects of their life. And so it is important that we connect these, um, you know, highly resilient students to mental health needs because they do need to care for themselves as, you know, uh, Dr. Bromwell was saying um, uh, that we need to care for ourselves before we can provide to others. And so, you know, important to uh, take care of these students who have come through these difficult uh, traumatic experiences um, because they have so much potential to, you know, give back to the community and uh, for themselves. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I have a question for Dr. Kaiser. A member of our audience is volunteering and wonders if there's a place where providers can access culturally validated mental health questionnaires. That's a great question. And I would say the answer is yes and no. Um, so for example, we have a database that's called the Global Mental Health Assessment Database that um, collates a lot of these tools that have been culturally adapted and validated for cross-cultural use. So I can, I can put the link in the chat in a minute. Um, that would be one, you know, starting point, but it's certainly not complete. And I will say, a lot of this work happens in a very kind of ad hoc way when someone is, you know, starting to work in a new setting to provide mental health care, and they'll sort of reach out to listservs, you know, with uh, of providers and researchers and ask, you know, do have tools been adapted and validated for this setting? You know, where can I find them? And so I don't think there's a great like centralized way, you know, a complete way to find these, um, so, you know, so people We'll also look for where there's been publications, you know, that um, that describe the validation, you know, processes, and sometimes those include the actual assessment tools, and sometimes they don't. But it is hard, and I wish we did a better job of disseminating these. Yeah, thank you. So interesting. Okay, let's see here. So I wanted to. Um, wrap up by asking each of our panelists to add or to tell us what their favorite tip is for maintaining mental health and wellness in really challenging times and world events and personal events can also um, stress us out. So I would just like to ask each of you to say, what's your favorite tip? And then maybe what is your, what's the go-to one go-to place or resource for people? So I always like to say we need to be in the present. You know, when we are flustered, we are either worried about like the future or, you know, reminiscing about the past that has been somewhat negative. And so we never take this moment to be in the present because if we are in the present moment, then we can see for what it is and then make that right decision. So a simple acronym is STOP, STOP meaning S, or stop, stop whatever you're doing. Uh, T is um, take a deep breath, uh, which means deep breath is always inhale like at the count of three and then exhale for the count of six. O is observe, observe around you what it is, like things around you, what can you hear, uh, you know, take this moment to observe around you. And P meaning proceed with, um, proceed with, 
a thoughtful or mindful way. So then you make the appropriate step. So doing that multiple times during the day, just to take a pause and bring yourself in this present moment is one of the ways you can overcome any anxieties or stressors. Um, and a resource would be um, Headspace is a really good app for self-help app. And that could be accessed for students at UCSD. It is free subscription, but uh, you know, uh, for uh, people in the community, it is a very small subscription fee and um, it has great resources. Wonderful, thank you. Um, I guess I'll go next. Um, talking about supporting the, helping the helpers, um, the San Diego Refugee Co um, Co Communities Coalition had a group of over 30 um, folks who work on the lines when um, people from different communities call in and who speak their language and wanted support for them because it, the secondary trauma of hearing things or seeing things on TV. So I, I am a big fan of turning the TV off or limiting your screen time. Um, but the, I wanted to share some of the beauty of the wisdom of talking about what is what, what is health or wellness or mental wellness from that group when I Zoomed in with them a couple of weeks ago. Um, and um, a person from Ethiopia shared that in Tigrinya, you say Tirana is spiritual soul and body in balance. <laughs> Just like, wow, you know, um, or seha, um, or there's life, um, afi is a wellness, there's a sense of wealth, do they feel like healthy, is there wealth, joy, yorba was said in Nigeria, um, sahat, um, so lots of fun, different words, but let your, those around you tell, you know, see if they can reflect on how they're feeling, so getting in the moment um, and reflecting every day, whether that's in the morning before you wake up, um, just have a sense of how you're doing and you're rebooting and this is, you're living your life intentionally. And then if you're out of balance and you're not feeling like doing what you normally want to do, reach out for help. Wonderful. Thank you. Dr. Kaiser. Yeah, and I, I mean, I would say in more, I guess, of a prevention sense, um, you know, we certainly feel in really hectic times that we need to be working constantly and like increasing the amount that we're working. But I think one of the most helpful things is just making sure that we're protecting time, you know, in our calendars and our weeks for stepping away from work and, you know, being able to wind down. I personally am really bad at this, so I have to like schedule, you know, social events and, you know, um, it make myself just kind of step away from the computer. So I guess I would say, you know, as a resource, like your your friends and your communities and um, making sure that you are um, having kind of practices or strategies or habits so that you do, um, you know, connect with them and, and not sort of forget or become disconnected from these resources that are around you and that really will support you. Um, and I think that becomes hard to do when, you know, we feel like we have such long to-do lists. It's hard to say, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to step away from work, but I at least always feel like I come back refreshed and do better work and work more efficiently. So, um, yeah, I think it's good for mental health and work productivity. 
Fabulous. Can I just add to that a little um, physiologic thing is thinking about the heart and pumping blood through our body. There's systole where the heart is pumping, but to fill back up with blood, you need diastole. So we need rest. If you can't keep pumping the blood unless you have the rest. So as hard as it is, and kind of this culture in America, we just need, we need our rest time so that we can work better. Fabulous. Thank you so much. So before we say goodbye, I'd like to bring back up the resource slides for uh, UC San Diego students. Um, there, we have an urgent care li uh, list here and a 911 and special other lines as well. And then on the next one for members of the community, the first, the mental health crisis line is 988. That's for anyone who's listening today. And then there's other resources available as well as your primary care physician. So um, I'd like to just um, thank everyone for joining us today for this really important conversation about mental health. And I'd like to especially thank our three fabulous presenters who showed us what's happening in the, to um, ensure mental health at, the, at UC San Diego and in our community and globally. It's been really such an interesting and important conversation. So thank you all so much. Please take very good care of yourself and your communities. And thank you all so much for joining us and for giving us such fabulous presentations. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.